This is a CBC Podcast. Will O'Connell looks pretty comfortable wielding a 28-inch chainsaw as he makes quick work of the tree in front of him. He's not a logger, though. And yeah, I cut them pretty long. Here, put this together. Will is a 31-year-old high school biology teacher from a chosen just west of Victoria. And we're stopped on the side of a dirt logging road on Vancouver Island. The tree Will's cutting up had fallen across the road, blocking our path deeper into the forest. It's pretty light. I think it's because it's rotten mostly, but I wonder if it would be worth keeping for firewood tonight or something. Will's taking me to the Kaikush Valley, to a site that he hasn't been back to in two years, a place he put his life on hold to protect. And now he's wondering, was it worth it? All right, quick and dirty. I'm Kieran Outsworn, and from the CBC Audio Dog Unit, this is a hell of a story. joy today at the Ferry Creek protest site. It was the largest act of civil disobedience in Canadian history. More than a thousand people were arrested for blockading logging roads on Vancouver Island, particularly in the Ferry Creek watershed. CBC's Kieran Oudshorn has been reporting from behind the lines of the Ferry Creek blockade since police... I was there in the summer of 2021 reporting on the protests as the RCMP, environmentalists and First Nations on both sides of the debate clashed over the future of old growth trees in this area. I'm chained to this bus. <laughs> um, I don't know how long I'll be here. Um, we're doing this just as a, a symbolic gesture, I suppose, as well as a way to slow them down and make um, their jobs harder. The way that the government works and the politics of things, it takes time and we keep talking and we have meetings and all the while the saw is still going. So it's at a critical point. At the height of the protest, the provincial government announced a two-year pause on old growth logging in the Ferry Creek watershed. Well, that was due to end this month, but on June 2nd, it was extended in a last-minute Hail Mary, kicking the decision down the road until 2025. But as we wait to learn the future of old-growth logging here, hundreds of people are still dealing with the legal, financial, and emotional repercussions of the protests. And that's why I'm back, here in British Columbia, to find out how the fight at Ferry Creek continues to impact those involved. All right. Hit the robe and ask, what's next? Tents that were piled on the side. And then this was all um, tents, always. And there was a huge tarpy there. And then, of course, the giant fur round was blocking the bridge. And on the other side, there was a tripod with someone sitting in it. And then a bus that we eventually turned sideways and people locked themselves to. O'Connell was one of the first people to take part in the Ferry Creek blockades. He spent months camped out here in this area we're driving through. This is a spot where 
Some of the people from the blockade tore out a metal logging gate and we put it in the road here and we welded it shut and then... But there's nothing here now. For someone who wasn't here at the blockade two years ago, there's little that distinguishes this part of the dirt logging road from the tens of kilometers that preceded it. Yeah, it's crazy to see no remnant now. Like there's no memory of what happened here except for our literal memories. There's no physical memory on the landscape. But whether or not the camp remains was never the point. It was whether or not we actually changed how we log old growth. And so that's the thing that I want. I want there to be some memory of the blockade written into our legislation, not out here on a logging road. Two years ago, Ferry Creek became an umbrella term for old growth protests on South Vancouver Island. Their goal was to pressure the provincial NDP government into halting all old growth logging across the province. Over a number of months, the blockades grew from one camp to many, until the logging company Teal Jones got an injunction to clear protesters. And in May, police began to enforce that injunction, starting here in the Kaikus. After they told us enforcement was happening, they said nobody's coming in or going out. And so a, a bunch of people hiked all night through this secret trail in the back, through rivers, through all this stuff, and showed up at camp. And one of them was Rainbow Eyes, and she was like, I want to be one of the first ones arrested. I went to her and I was like, well, you could lock your neck to this gate. And she was like, that feels right. And so... Um, she locked her neck to that gate up there, and it was one of the first images of the blockade. For me, protesting was doing something that once I got out there, I realized that that was like the only thing that I could do. There's nothing else. There's no other choice. This is Angela Davidson, otherwise known as Rainbow Eyes. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm a member of the Danaktau Awilala First Nation. Rainbow Eyes is a land guardian, a graduate of the First Nations Stewardship Technicians Training Program at Vancouver Island University. She became a fixture on the blockades. Along with the photos of her neck locked to that gate, there's a lot of other videos and photos of her wearing her traditional cedar hat, beating her drum, and being arrested. The fourth arrest was really the hardest arrest because it was when HQ was starting to get raided and we had to watch the RCMPs extract force defenders all day long and we just were, we were powerless. The RCMP officers got me and one was on each arm and then my right knee, it twisted. I was, I was so angry because it was so unfair so I was pulling and my knee pulled out, like it, 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 something happened to it. And I remember the RCMP who had this knee just looked at me, he's like, oh, that must have hurt. Just like the biggest jerk about it. Activists have described injuries from bruising to broken ribs. The RCMP say the majority of the more than 1,100 arrests were made without incident and that no serious injuries were reported to them. Many of those arrested ended up being let go without charges catch and release, the activists call it. But it was a different story for Rainbow Eyes, who ended up being detained for a total of five days over the course of her five arrests, and now faces seven civil charges, including contempt of court and failure to comply with the conditions of her release. It's kept me up at night, absolutely, yeah. 
it's it's been a long process um, with different lawyers. Tell me a little bit about how you're feeling about uh, your court case. I wish I could do more to prepare, but overall, I'm I'm so ready to do it. I have no regrets. I just want to do the best I can to make sure that we um, to help you know change the system and protect the trees. On top of the five days that she's already spent in jail, she was also banned from going south of Nanaimo when the blockades were active. I wasn't allowed to go back at all. They said no, um, or else I would 100% go to jail. Then, four months of house arrest. After the house arrest, we got it lessened to a curfew. From 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., I was um, curfewed to where we were living in um, North Saanich. And that's for months? months. Yeah, it was really hard for, you know, being an Indigenous land defender, doing what we're supposed to do. Most of the protests took place on the traditional territory of the Panchidat First Nation. Bill Jones, an elder from that community, was a loud and fervent supporter of the protests, while the community's elected chief, Jeff Jones, opposed the protests, asking them to leave several times. Did, did you ever feel conflicted at all about the fact that there wasn't a uniform sort of position from the Pachidet? No, it never bothered me at all um, because Elder Bill always said Indigenous people won't come out and support. He said that our people are at home healing. So... We ne- I never expected people from the territory to come out and join us on the front lines because they're at home and they're, they're healing from the colonization and um, the cultural genocide committed by our government. The Pajidat did not reply to CBC's interview requests. We need to take a quick break here, but hell the story will be right back. The fight at Ferry Creek may have turned many activists' lives upside down, but the locking company at the heart of the protest says it's been adversely affected as well. The Teal Jones Group is a privately owned timber harvesting company that holds the right to log in this area, and they've signed several revenue-sharing agreements with the Panchidat First Nation. Teal Jones has accused protesters of infringing on their legal harvesting of crown timber to the tune of $20 million. Sure. My name is Conrad Brown. I'm the director of uh, Indigenous Partnerships and Strategic Relations for the Teal Jones Group. Yeah, so so the beginning of the blockade was a couple of years ago, but it manifested itself for, for an extended period of time to the point where we were set back even last year in our harvesting opportunities. Um, it's funny how large-scale protests will discourage certain contractors from coming to work for a company. Uh, So our number one thing for the injunction when we went and put it was to try to keep our employees safe, to be able to go and harvest uh, what we were legally allowed to harvest and that we had agreements with First Nations in the province to go and harvest. So um, it made it really difficult uh, for us, for sure. Beyond business ramifications, Brown has made a more serious claim. We have pulled numerous logs out of our log inventory uh, that had been spiked. 
Tree spiking involves driving a metal nail deep into a tree so that if it's logged, it'll cause damage to equipment. In our opinion, there's a near fatal, uh, could have been a fatal catastrophic damage done to the saw, destroyed the saw, and our Sawyer was standing right beside the saw. It was literally uh, by pure luck that something major didn't happen to that individual. We know exactly where the log came from, and uh, we know that it was definitely spiked. The RCMP have confirmed that they have investigated incidents of spiked trees downed near the blockades, but no charges have been laid. I'm not saying that didn't happen because it, it was a wide open blockade. During the fight at Ferry Creek, Shauna Knight was living in a tree sit 60 feet off the ground at the very top of the unlogged watershed. Anyone could have come to do whatever their little gorilla heart desired. Like, it's not, we can't, I can't control anything. No one else is the boss of anything. I would be surprised if that was true. Obviously, we don't want to hurt anyone. That's not, it goes against everything we're trying to do, right? Knight has not been accused of spiking trees and maintains that nobody she knows had anything to do with it. At the same time, she says she can understand the motivation to destroy logging equipment. Well, I don't know. I just, it's hard not to fantasize and dream about doing something that would actually cause financial harm to the companies that are, like, thrusting us into this climate crisis, right? It's hard not to to dream about, you know, blowing up machines, but we always agreed we would never do that and you know, it's kind of like honor, you know, to stick with that kind of that program, but I I really I do have to say it's definitely crossed my mind as it probably has lots of people's minds like How are we going to take this down? Like, how can we stop this? Putting our bodies on the line wasn't enough. You know, it didn't matter who you were. Elderly, a child, indigenous, settler, it just, it didn't matter. A mother of two, Knight has been a constant presence at the blockades and a central organizer of the Rainforest Flying Squad, the loose organization that helped plan the protests. For sure, the early days were full of hope. Um, yeah, we thought we were going to change the world. We thought we were going to save the forest. Uh, we thought we were going to put an end to old growth logging. We had big ambitions and high hopes, for sure. But as the blockade dragged on and on, and RCMP enforcement escalated with daily helicopter flybys, midnight raids, and pepper spraying of crowds of protesters... The weight of living on the front lines began to grind people like Knight down. I think I was pretty bitter towards the end. Pretty burnt out, pretty beat down. I look at photos of myself, I was kind of gaunt, like not looking so well, you know? Mm. Right when everything fell apart and and we were crushed by the RCMP, I felt like, you know, what did we do? Why did we do this? We encouraged people to come and do this and... And they just got beat up. And, and we actually didn't even get any permanent protections put in on those forests. We just kind of caused a, caused a stink and then, and then uh, cost the court system, cost, you know, cost the taxpayers a lot of money, cost, you know, the whole thing. It, we, we spent a lot of money. We 
we raised a lot of hell, and I don't know if we really accomplished what we intended to. Documents obtained by CBC through access to information show that the RCMP spent nearly $19 million on enforcement operations at Ferry Creek. And of the more than 400 charges laid, nearly 20% of those cases were dropped earlier this year, the result of the RCMP failing to properly read the injunction to protesters before arresting them. But while the dismissals represent a reprieve from legal consequences for some, the mental, physical, and financial fallout of protesting is something Knight is still grappling with. Every time I heard a helicopter, I would get, like, anxiety. Um, for me, it was financially crushing. Like, I sold my business to fund my efforts at the blockade. Um, And I also lost the place that I was living at. Um, So yeah, houselessness and financial despair and depression. Yeah, that was like a super reality for me Um, because what we created at Ferry Creek was such like a, such a sense of community and belonging. And then just to sort of be like torn away from that and then you're all alone again. Yeah, it's... um, it was hard to figure out what to do now. You know, where to, where to go now. <laughs> Back in the forest, biology teacher and blockader Will O'Connell is nervous about returning to the cut block he tried to defend two years ago. I don't think I'm someone who knows how to process things kind of like I know how to talk about things and I know how to act on things but this is definitely something that I've got to emotionally process like the forest isn't a peaceful place for me to go anymore winding closer to the forgotten battlefield O'Connell shares some memories from those final days my girlfriend at the time Carly was in one of these tree sets and we'll go to where hers was because I haven't been back since they logged it actually and uh, as soon as she was out of the tree they could start falling so they were cutting trees down on this side and it would smash the ground and it would just reverberate around the whole valley and it became very painful to listen to that I think the tree sitters were going half mad we round one last corner and then holy fuck it's it's just the first time I'm seeing this block that I used to... Well, fuck me. Every tree that was allowed to be logged is gone, leaving behind a sea of stumps under the harsh midday sun. When we came in here for the first time, this valley, was, it was like a, an amphitheater of old growth all the way around. And it just looks totally different now. The whole thing is bleached white. The cut blocks stretch into the distance, rising up the hill on our left and on our right, another 200 meters down into the valley below. I mean, it was a forest, like, and a rich one. And it's just, it's just crazy to come back. We got to keep walking. I got to keep walking. Carly's tree sit was down over there, so I want to go down over there. Yeah. 
Man, alive. O'Connell climbs down, picking his way through the debris until he finds a particularly large stump. Curling into a ball, he sits for a long time, looking out over the raised landscape. When he finally returns to the road, his face is flush. I hate being here. And just, I don't know who to be angry at. And I just, yeah, I hate that they won. When we started this, we believed that we would save these places. We didn't just, we didn't just think, oh, maybe we'll make a stand symbolically by trying to protect this one place. We believed that this old growth valley would be protected by our actions. And now I don't believe it's possible to think like that anymore. We thought we'd get listened to on some level. I think we thought there was a system in place that if the public was on board and if the science was on board, and then if you shoved a stick in the spokes of the system, they would redirect it a bit. They would make some change where you go, okay, everything's in line for change. Now push them a bit because they're dragging their heels. And we did all of that. And the, it feels like this is powers that are so strong, have a stranglehold on the province in a way that, like you can't just, you can't just protect a place. You can't, you can't win a single battle. That's what it feels like. Something is holding them in the current course. I think that's too strong. That's stronger than the will of the people. The largest mass arrest in Canadian history and you get no change. It's not entirely true to say that there has been no change. At the height of the blockades, the B.C. government announced a two-year deferment on old-growth logging in Ferry Creek, essentially a temporary moratorium on logging in the geographic heart of the protests. Then, this past February, the B.C. government deferred logging in another 2.1 million hectares of old-growth forests. This deferral did not include Ferry Creek or the Kaikus. But neither side is satisfied. For many of the activists, those steps feel like half-measures and enable more of what they call talk and log. And as Teal Jones' rep Conrad Brown explains, the February deferrals have had a major impact on the industry. Industry didn't get a chance to speak on the deferrals until after the fact. And uh, the way that the government rolled it out with so much um, unknown caused a big, a big dip into the 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 resources, if you will, of the companies to have faith in what was going to be moving forward. We are fastly approaching 15 mills permanently shut down so far, and 10,000 or so uh, people either temporarily or, or the vast majority permanently laid off. So uh, the old growth deferrals have had a, a major impact, um, and I'm not sure if that was the, the intention of the government when they created all of the different uh, new regulations. A lot of the new regulations the province has brought in since the protests have focused on empowering First Nations to co-develop forest landscape plans, essentially giving them more say over logging in their traditional territories. 
Brown says that Teal Jones is in favor of collaboration with First Nations, but he argues that the current approach has added too many new bureaucratic layers. I don't think that they have a clear understanding of the added layer of what they're doing and the lack of capacity within the vast majority of First Nations to to add this layer of ref, into the referral process and how that was going to slow things down and it's showing itself. Um, so there's a whole bunch of things that I don't think people gave enough thought to or enough foresight. They were just reacting, in my opinion, to some pressure uh, and they were they made the decisions that they felt were the right ones at the time. I think history will show that, that perhaps it wasn't the, the, the best uh, thought out process. Teal Jones has always been an optimistic company and will continue to be optimistic, but they're dark days right now. They truly are. The deferral of Ferry Creek that was keeping any proposed cut blocks from moving forward at the site of the original flashpoint well, that was due to end this month, but on June 2nd, it was extended to 2025, which means the fight at Ferry Creek is far from over. When I talk to everyone, they talk about how really crushing that experience was, how, how much that defeat really knocked them down. I imagine you're probably not ready to launch again. I mean, had you talked to me last winter, I definitely would have said, I will never do that again. It was a complete nightmare. Um, and I don't want to do it again like we did it. I don't want to put people in harm's way like ended up what, that's what happened, you know? And I don't know how we can avoid that, but I'm, I'm not just gonna be like, I guess they're gonna log it. Like, I've never hiked so far in my life and tried so hard and, and felt so passionate about something. I think we worked way too hard to just let it let it get cut. So, we've got to do something. That documentary was produced by me and AC Rowe. Our senior producer is Julia Poggle. A version of this story originally aired on the CBC's The House, edited by Jennifer Chevalier. And that's it for this week's Hell of a Story. We're part of the CBC Audio Doc Unit. If you like what you're hearing on Hell of a Story and you want to hear more, hit subscribe and save us to your favorites. We're on CBC Listen and all the other usual suspects. I'm Kieran Outsorn. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.